Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value when it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership, or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. A few weeks ago, the Michigan Congressman Justin Amash announced that he was leaving the Republican Party to become an independent. I've had concerns with the Republican Party for several years. I've had concerns with the party system generally. Amash said the partisan rancor in Washington was just too much and counterproductive. I think we really need the American people to stand up and say, hey, enough is enough. We've had it with these two parties trying to ram their partisan nonsense down our throats. So we thought you might like to hear the following episode that we first put out last fall, just before Election Day. Because even though the next big Election Day is more than 15 months away, doesn't it kind of feel like it's tomorrow? The episode is called America's Hidden Duopoly. Imagine a gigantic industry that's being dominated by just one or two companies. Actually, you don't have to imagine. Google has more than 90% of the global search engine market. So not quite a monopoly, but pretty close. Such cases are rare, but not so rare is the duopoly, when two firms dominate an industry, like Intel and AMD in computer processors, Boeing and Airbus in jet airliners, the Sharks and the Jets in the fictional gangs from the 50s industry. But surely the most famous duopoly is this one. People who think young say, Pepsi, please. The rivalry between Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola goes back to the 19th century. Coke was long dominant, but in the 1970s and 80s, Pepsi gained ground and marketed hard to younger consumers. Coke's internal research found that most people, even Coke employees, preferred Pepsi. In 1985, they abandoned their classic recipe in favor of new Coke, which tasted more like Pepsi. This did not work out so well. I'm Don Keogh, president of the Coca-Cola Company. When we brought you the new taste of Coke, we knew that millions would prefer it, and millions do. What we didn't know was how many thousands of you would phone and write asking us to bring back the classic taste of original Coca-Cola. Coke eventually got rid of New Coke altogether. And despite the flip-flop, or maybe because of it and the attendant free media, in any case, Coke regained the top spot. Today, 
even as soda consumption falls, the rivalry rages on, with both companies adding juices, teas, and waters to their portfolios. You can afford to make those big acquisitions when you've got a ton of cash on hand, when you're one of just two companies sharing a huge market. And there's another advantage to being half of a duopoly. Self-perpetuation. This was covered pretty extensively in the media during the so-called cola wars. The, quote, war is good for both of them. I believe the Coke and Pepsi together uh, in this cola war they've been in for decades now uh, actually help each other sell an awful lot of product. There are plenty of reasons why duopolies exist, and they're not necessarily all sinister. In capitalism, scale is really important. There are all sorts of advantages to being big, which leads big companies to get even bigger, gobbling up smaller companies and essentially dictating the rules of their market. Not everyone likes this trend. In many quarters, there's a strong appetite for a smaller scale, for mom and pop and Indian artisanal. But let's be honest, that smaller scale idea is cute, but it's not winning. What's winning is dominance. Entire industries dominated by just a couple behemoths. We've already given you a few examples from a variety of industries, but there's another duopoly, a mighty one, that you probably don't even think about as an industry. Which duopoly am I talking about? I'll give you some clues. Let's go back over what we just discussed about duopolies. They're big institutions that take advantage of their size to get even bigger. I mean, I'm talking to consultants on both sides, many of whom have been doing this for a long time, and they've never seen uh, this amount of money. As we said, not everyone likes this trend, but the opposition is not winning. I'd like to see more competition. You know, um, competition is, it makes a better product. And this leaves an entire industry run by just two behemoths. Ladies and gentlemen, my mother, my hero, and our next president. And I could not be more proud tonight to present to you and to all of America, my father and our next president, Hillary Clinton. Donald J. Trump. Does it surprise you to hear our political system characterized as an industry? It surprised this guy. Absolutely never thought of it in those terms. And that's Michael Porter, the world-famous business strategist. And at the core of it is what we call the duopoly. Comparing our political system to something like Coke and Pepsi? That can't be right, can it? No, Porter says. It's worse than that. Coke and Pepsi don't control their market nearly as fully as the Republicans and Democrats do. So you see, even in soft drinks, we have a lot of new competitors. Even though Coke and Pepsi are so big, they don't truly dominate. Indeed, Coke and Pepsi only control about 70% of the soft drink market. At least they've got the Dr. Pepper Snapple alliance to worry about. Whereas Republicans and Democrats, you can take all the libertarians and independents, the Green Party, Working Families Party, the American Delta Party, the United States Pirate Party, which is a real thing. You add them all together, and they're not even close to Dr. Pepper. For decades, we've been hearing from both sides of the aisle that Washington is broken. Washington is broken. Washington is totally broken. This system is broken. It's not working. Washington is not working. Washington right now is broken. Mr. Speaker, Washington is broken. 
But what if the Washington is broken idea is just a line? I like to teach the world to sing. Maybe it's even a slogan that the industry approves. Yeah. What if they're just selling and we're buying? What if it's not broken at all? The core idea here is that Washington isn't broken. In fact, it turns out that Washington is doing exactly what it's designed to do. Today on Freakonomics Radio, is Washington really an industry just like any other? How'd it get that way? And what's it mean? From Stitcher and Dubner Productions, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Once upon a time, there was a dairy products company in Wisconsin called Gale Foods, G-E-H-L. My name is Catherine Gale. Catherine Gale was the CEO of the company. It had been founded well over a century earlier by her great-grandfather. For years, Gale Foods sold the standard dairy items, butter, milk, ice cream. In the 1960s, they got into pudding and cheese sauces. And more recently, Gale Foods kept keeping up with the times. High-tech food manufacturing. Meaning low-acid aseptic processing and packaging using robots, which creates shelf-stable foods without the use of preservatives. The process is also useful for products like weight loss shakes and iced coffee drinks. Under Catherine Gale, Gale Foods had more than 300 employees and was doing nearly $250 million a year in sales. But there were a lot of challenges. Why? Because the food industry is incredibly competitive. There are new competitors all the time, also new technologies, new consumer preferences. So to plot a path forward... Gail turned to one of the most acclaimed consultants in the world. I'm Michael Porter. I'm a professor at Harvard Business School, and I work most of the time on strategy and competitiveness. Porter is in his early 70s. As an undergrad, he studied aerospace and mechanical engineering. Then he got an MBA and a PhD in business economics. So he understands both systems and how things are made within those systems. He's written landmark books called Competitive Strategy and On Competition. He is cited more than any other scholar in the field. He's best known for creating a popular framework for analyzing the competitiveness of different industries. The framework that I introduced many years ago sort of says that there's these five forces. These five forces help determine just how competitive a given industry is. The five forces are the threat of new entrants, the threat of substitute products or services, the bargaining power of suppliers, the bargaining power of buyers, and rivalry among existing competitors. We're not there yet, but if you want to jump ahead and consider how these forces apply to our political system, I'm going to say them again. The threat of new entrants, the threat of substitute products or services, the bargaining power of suppliers, bargaining power of buyers, and rivalry among existing competitors. Anyway, you can see why someone like Catherine Gale, the CEO of a century-old food company, might want to bring in someone like Michael Porter to figure out what to do next. 
It was a classic business strategy exercise. Now, Gail, in addition to her family business, had another abiding interest, politics. Yes, I've certainly moved around in the uh, partisan classification. During high school, she was a Republican. Over time, she drifted left. My daughter, actually, when she was six, came to me and said, Mommy, I think I'm a Republican or maybe a Democrat. And I think that gives a good sense of uh, where things are at in our household. In 2007, Gail joined the National Finance Committee of Barack Obama's presidential campaign. She became one of his top fundraisers. A couple years after Obama was elected, Gail joined the board of a government organization called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which helps U.S. firms do business in emerging markets. And I was paying a lot of attention to what was happening in Washington, D.C. And Gail did not like what she saw in Washington, D.C. She didn't like it one bit. It became really clear to me that this fight was not about solving problems for American people. This fight was about one party beating the other party and that the parties were more committed to that than to actually solving problems or creating opportunities. Eventually, I understood that it didn't matter who we elected. It didn't matter the quality of the candidates. And so once it became clear to me that it was a systems problem, I switched from investing my time in searching for the next great candidate and turned an eye to the fundamental root cause structures in the political system that pretty much guarantee that as voters, we are perpetually dissatisfied. So she started raising money for nonpartisan organizations working toward political reform. And one of the things that became clear is that there was no thesis for investment in political reform and innovation. In other words, people didn't want to give money to nonpartisan organizations working toward political reform. They only wanted to give money to political parties and their candidates. In fact, Catherine Gale found that potential donors had a hard time believing that such a thing as nonpartisan political reform even existed. That's how conditioned they were to seeing the political system through a two-party lens. It was around this time that Catherine Gale began meeting with Michael Porter. She had brought him in to Gale Foods to help figure out the company's strategy going forward, keeping in mind his five famous forces about industry competitiveness, new rivals, existing rivalries, substitute products, supplier power, and customer power. And while we were on that strategy, I would consistently make the case to Michael that, wow, how we're analyzing this industry of low acid aseptic food production, which is the business I was in, all of these tools are directly applicable to analyzing the business of politics. And I frankly, I knew almost nothing about politics. But the more I heard and the more we talked, the more it became clear that that we really needed to take a, a fresh look here. And so it was out of that crucible of analyzing a a traditional business strategy and at the same time devoting so much time to political reform and innovation that it became clear that politics was an industry, the industry was thriving, and that all of the tools of conventional business analysis were applicable here. And that's where kind of looking at this as an industry starts to provide some power. Okay, so you came to the conclusion that politics is an industry much like many of the other industries 
that you've been studying over your career, you never really thought of it in those terms before? Absolutely never thought of it in those terms. Uh, uh, we always thought of politics as a public institution, that the rules were somehow codified in the rule of law and in our constitution. But what we came to see is that politics is really about competition between largely private actors. Um, and these actors are at the core of it is what we call the duopoly. The duopoly, Republicans and Democrats. And that competition has been sort of structured around a set of practices and rules and in some cases policies that have been created over time, um, largely by the actors themselves. I mean, actually the founders left a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of room uh, in, in terms of how the actual plumbing would work. Uh, but it was interesting, multiple of our founders actually expressed a deep fear that parties would take over. In fact, John Adams said at one point, there is nothing which I dread so much as a division of the republic into two great parties, each arranged under its leader and concerting measures in opposition to each other. And if you take a look at Washington's farewell address, which he wrote in 1796, he talks about dangers which could come in front of the republic in the future and he specifically focuses on two. One is foreign influence, and the other is partisanship. The other danger is the formation of strong parties. Having come to the conclusion that the political system operated more like a traditional industry than a public institution, Catherine Gale and Michael Porter set down their ideas in a Harvard Business School report. It's called why competition in the politics industry is failing America. When you read the paper, right there under key findings is this sentence in bright red print. The political system isn't broken. It's doing what it is designed to do. In other words, it was no coincidence that politics had become self-sustaining, self-dealing, and self-centered. They were the blue team and the red team, kind of like Pepsi and Coke. Essentially, they divided up an entire industry into two sides. And we ended up uh, seeing that it wasn't just the parties competing. It's that they had created you know, influence and, in a sense, captured the other actors in the industry. So you have uh, media and political consultants and lobbyists and candidates and policies all divided onto you know, one of two sides. What you see is the system has been optimized over time. For the benefit of private gain-seeking organizations, our two political parties and their industry allies, what we together call the political industrial complex. And this industry has made it very, very hard to play at all if you're not playing their game. How does the political industry compare in size and scope, dollars, uh, employees, direct and indirect, um, penetration and influence, let's say, to other industries that you've studied, pharmaceutical industry, auto industry, and so on? Well, it's, it's a great question, um, and we have done enormous amounts of work on it. Uh, 
it turns out to be very difficult to get what I would call a completely definitive and you know co- comprehensive answer. We estimate that in the most recent uh, two-year election cycle, um, the industry's total revenue was approximately $16 billion. Uh, this is not the biggest industry in the economy, but it's substantial. It'd be one thing if this large industry were delivering value to its customers, which is supposed to be us, the citizenry. But Gail and Porter argue the political industry is much better at generating revenue for itself and creating jobs for itself while treating its customers with something close to disdain, kind of like the cable TV industry on steroids. And the numbers back up their argument. Customer satisfaction with the political industry is at historic lows. Fewer than a quarter of Americans currently say they trust the federal government. In terms of popularity, it ranks below every private industry. That includes the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries, the airline industry, and, yes, cable TV. Generally, in industries where customers are not happy and yet the players in the industry are doing well, you'll see a new entrant. You'll see a new company come into business to serve those customers. A new company like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or Sling TV or, well, you get the point. So in today's world, we have the majority of voters say in polls that they would rather have an independent. So, you know, in a normal industry, you'd have a a whole new competitor coming up that was about independence, you know, to serve that unmet need. And yet in politics, we don't see any new entrants other than, you know, Democrats and Republicans. So why is that? Well, it turns out that our political parties work well together in one particular area. And that is actually colluding together over time behind the scenes to create rules and practices that essentially erect barriers to entry, ways to keep out new competition. In their report, Gale and Porter identify the five key inputs to modern political competition. Candidates, campaign talent, voter data, idea suppliers, and lobbyists. Here's what they write. Increasingly, most everything required to run a modern campaign and govern is tied to or heavily influenced by one party or the other, including think tanks, voter data, and talent. So essentially what's happened is the parties have now sort of divided up the the key inputs (laughs) to political competition. And and if you're not a Republican or a Democrat, then you're in trouble uh, in in even finding a campaign manager, much less getting the best up-to-date voter data and the best analytics and so forth. It's not enough to monopolize the campaign machinery. Gale and Porter argue that the political industry has essentially co-opted the media, which spreads their messages for free. This helps Donald Trump tonight. This is a big, big beginning to the end of what has been a witch hunt. The man in the White House is behaving now like a character on that old detective show, Columbo. Perhaps most important, the two parties rig the election system against would-be disruptors. The rules they set allow for partisan primaries, gerrymandered congressional districts, and winner-take-all elections. 
So each side of the duopoly, Republicans and Democrats, and the players that are that are playing for those teams effectively, have over time worked to improve their own side's fortunes. But collectively, they also have come together to improve the ability of the industry as a whole to protect itself from new competition, from third parties that could threaten um, either of the two sides of the duopoly. In this industry, because it's a duopoly that's protected by these huge barriers to entry, essentially what the parties have done is they've been very, very clever. They don't compete head-to-head for the same voters. They're not competing for the middle. It's likely that we have a much more powerful center, a much more powerful group of moderates than our current duopoly demonstrates. What they've understood is competing for the middle is a sort of destructive competition. It's kind of a zero-sum competition. So the parties have divided the voters and kind of sort of ignored the ones in the middle. Uh, because they don't have to worry about them. Because if, if, if the middle voter is unhappy, which most middle voters are today in America, what can they do? The only thing either party has to do to thrive, to win the next election, is to convince the public that they are just this much less hated than the one other choice that the voter has when they go to the ballot which means that that gives those two companies, essentially the Democrats and the Republicans, the incentive to prioritize other customers. And their target customer on each side is the special interest and the partisans, and they get a lot of resources uh, and a lot of campaign contributions and, and massive amounts of lobbying money to try to get their you know, support with whatever those partisan or special interest needs are. There is now an entire industry of politics that moves forward independent of whether that industry actually solves problems for the American people. So what's happened is that the moat or the barriers to getting into this industry and providing a different type of competition have been built to enormous heights, which has allowed the parties to structure the nature of the rivalry among themselves in a way that really maximizes their benefit to them as institutions, but doesn't actually serve the public interest. Well, that's depressing, isn't it? Insightful, perhaps, but depressing nonetheless. So do Catherine Gale and Michael Porter have any bright ideas for tackling this problem? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's coming up right after this. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Marriott. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. Cook up a meal in a full kitchen, unpack and stay organized with the in-room alpha closet system, plus bring your pet and have your best friend by your side. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites 
Go there with Marriott Bonvoy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. The business strategist Michael Porter and the CEO-turned-political reformist Catherine Gale argue in a Harvard Business School report that our political system has been turned into an industry with no real competition. The industry's primary beneficiaries are itself and its many ancillary participants, including the media. But the vast majority of Americans who are somewhere in the middle are feeling very, very disaffected. The lack of vigorous competition, they argue has allowed the Democrats and Republicans to carve out diametrically opposed political bases, fairly narrow and extremely partisan. So years ago, we created partisan primaries in order to actually take the selection of a candidate out of this, quote-unquote, smoke-filled back room and give the selection of the party candidate choice to citizens. So that was designed to give more control to citizens. It turns out it has had a very deleterious effect on competition and has increased the power of the parties. And the parties, Gail and Porter argue, use those partisan bases to support the desires of the political industry's true customers and its wealthiest special interests. Industries like healthcare, real estate, and financial services. Also, labor unions and lobbyists. In this duopolistic business model, polarization is a feature, not a bug. We have a chart uh, in our report that just selects some what we call landmark-type legislation over the last 50, 60 years. And if you go back, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago, the landmark legislation was consensus. For instance, the Social Security Act of 1935 had 90% Democratic support and 75% Republican. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 had 60% Democratic support and, again, 75% Republican. Now, for the last decade or two, that's been the opposite pattern. The only way uh, landmark legislation gets passed is one party has enough votes to pass that by itself. The Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, was passed in 2010 with zero Republican votes in Congress. President Trump's 2018 tax reform bill, zero Democratic votes. So your diagnosis suggests that this industry serves itself incredibly well. It suggests that it serves us, the citizenry, really poorly. 
And it also suggests that more competition would improve the industry, as it does in just about every industry. But um, just having, you know, more competition in parties doesn't seem to be the answer alone. I mean, there are plenty of multi-party political systems around the world that have similar cases of dysfunction and corruption and cronyism like ours. The UK comes to mind. Israel comes to mind. So how direct a step or direct a uh, you know prescription would that be? Well, I think in our system in particular, where we have only two, and they have been able through the set of choices we've described to actually set up the rules of competition that reinforce their you know, partisan competition, dividing voters and so forth. Uh, more competition I think would be you know, incredibly uh, valuable. But it has to be a different kind of competition. You know, it, it can't be uh, just another party that's going to split our electorate into three partisan groups. And so in our work, we focus on what would it take to make the competition less about dividing the voters and how could we make the competition more around building up more choices for voters that were more about solutions. By the way, let me be clear. We're not against parties per se. Uh, what we are against is the nature of the competition that our existing you know, dominant parties have created. Let me ask you this. When you suggest that these rules were carefully constructed, um, I guess if I were thinking about something other than politics, the first thought that would come to mind then is, well, collusion, right? If I can be one member of a duopoly, I actually hate my rival much less than I hate the idea of anybody else who would interrupt that rivalry because we're splitting the spoils now. Do you have any evidence of collusion between the parties to create a system that essentially keeps the rest out? Well, you know, first of all, that is the right word. It is collusion. And, I, you know, there's a probably a legal definition of collusion, which I don't know. You know, I'm not a lawyer. But the effect is exactly the same. The parties have agreed on uh, a set of rules that benefit the duopoly and preserve, you know, this uh, nature of, of competition. You can really put rules into a number of buckets. There, there's kind of uh, there's kind of legislative machinery, as we call it, which is how the Senate and the Congress are run, and uh, and then there's the election rules having to do with, uh, you know, what is the primary process like and, uh, you know, what does it take to get on the ballot as an independent and the various campaign finance stuff that, that, surrounds, uh, that surrounds elections. Has anyone ever considered um, filing, whether in earnest or not, an antitrust suit against the Republicans and Democrats? You know, uh Stephen, that, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I have. <laughs> We've actually had, uh, you know, a significant effort to see if that's feasible, wh- you know, what the law is, you know, looking at the antitrust statutes. But this is absolutely what antitrust policy is all about. It's, it's, it's creating, you know, open, effective competition that serves the, 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 the customer and, and, and the public interest. And this industry cries out for that. All right. So in the report, you discuss the um, the many advantages the two parties have. And I think we all recognize that, you know, there's real power in size and there's leverage, especially when you're making your own rules for your own industry. And you write that, you know, they 
use those advantages to retain control and to constrict competition and so on. But it strikes me um, that Donald Trump really got around a lot of those advantages. So you write that the parties, quote, control the inputs to modern campaigning governing. But he didn't rely on that, um, really. You wrote that uh, the parties co-opt channels for reaching voters, but he kind of co-opted or maybe took advantage of his own channels, including free media and his own social media accounts. You write that the parties, quote, erect high and rising barriers to new competition. But in the case of Trump, you know, his own party tried as hard as they could to erect the highest barrier and couldn't keep him out. And and so on those fronts, it would strike me that the parties failed, failed to constrict a certain competitor. So I don't know how you personally feel about President Trump, but according to those advantages and his end run around them, it would sound as though he is at least one example of the solution to the problems that you're describing. Well, yeah, I think uh, I think that is definitely a good question, and we must take that on. I would say uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, uh, the best choice that uh, that President Trump made was to run in a party. He had to pick one side of the duopoly because he knew he couldn't win as an independent, and he had actually explored running as an independent in previous years, but that in the current system is not seen to be a winning strategy. The other thing I would say about him was that he uh, had resources. Uh, in the end, he didn't have to use that many of them. Uh, but in a sense, he could almost have self-financed and he was appealing to a certain subset of the partisans maybe a somewhat neglected subset of the people on the right. And he had a very strong existing brand identity. Uh, so he was able to, uh, uh, you know, get a lot of recognition and coverage without having to spend that much on advertising. He represents a personality-driven campaign within a party. But we don't believe that he represents fundamentally transforming the structure of competition in the industry. But the real thing that I think, you know, everybody has to understand is that in modern politics, the parties are more powerful than the president. And Donald Trump has gotten very little done. Uh, he's achieved no compromise. And his signature success got zero Democratic votes. And the game hasn't changed. So far, Trump is just the third in a row president that may have said that he was going to do things differently and cut across lines and all that kind of stuff. But frankly, he didn't. Obama didn't. And President Bush didn't. Even though President Obama and President Bush campaigned on bipartisanship and bringing people together, they failed. So I think that the, those, those recent case studies, I think, are sobering. We should note that some political scientists argue that Gale and Porter's analysis of party power has it backwards. These scholars say our political system is in bad shape because the parties have gotten weaker over time. They argue that stronger parties could help beat back special interests and produce more compromise and moderation. 
Want some interesting evidence for this parties are weak argument? Think back to the 2016 presidential election. You had one national party, the Democrats, that tried as hard as it could, to the point of cheating, essentially, to pre-select its candidate, Hillary Clinton, who then lost. And you had the other national party, the Republicans, try as hard as it could to keep a certain candidate off the ballot, but they failed and he won. It's true that the parties are not as strong as they were in the past, but both sides of the political industrial complex, Democrats and Republicans, are as strong as ever. It's just that the power may not all reside within the party. And if parties were stronger, that doesn't mean they'd be moderating forces. That's what some people say. I don't. I really don't understand that argument. Uh, the stronger they are, the less moderating they're going to be, given the nature of the uh, competition that's been created. And I think we are really asking for too little when we say let's tinker around the edges and get stronger parties so that we can, you know, have a little bit of a cleaner process. Instead, uh, what we believe is we need to create structural reforms that would actually better align the election process and the legislative process with the needs of the average citizen. All right. So you've diagnosed the problem in a really interesting and profound way um, by overlaying a template um, that's more commonly applied to firms to the political industry. And, of course, it theoretically leads to a different set of solutions than we've typically been hearing. So then you discuss, I guess, four major solutions. Uh, Let's go through them point by point. Number one, you talk about restructuring the election process itself. Um, Give me some really concrete examples of what that would look like. And and I'd also love to hear whether you do see some evidence of these examples happening, because it does seem there has been uh, some election reform in states and regions around the country. Yes. Well, when we think about reform, we have to think about really two questions. Number one, is a reform powerful? Will it actually change the competition? And a lot of what people are proposing now is actually not going to make much difference. So term limits are a great example. We aren't fans of term limits because we think that without changing the root cause incentives, you'll actually just have different faces playing the same game. So number one is we have to re-engineer the election processes, the election machinery. And there are three electoral reforms that are important. We call it the election Election trifecta. trifecta. And, you know, the first and probably the single most powerful is to move to nonpartisan single ballot primaries. Currently, if you're going to vote in the primary, you show up and you get a Democratic ballot or a Republican ballot, and then you vote for who's going to represent that party in the general election. And the one that's on the farthest left or the one that's on the farthest right has a tendency to win uh, because the people that turn out for primaries are a relatively small fraction of even the party. And those are the people that show up because, you know, they're really partisans and they really have special interests and they really, really care about, you know, getting somebody on the ballot that's, you know, for them. In a single ballot, nonpartisan primary, all the candidates for any office, no matter what party they're in, are on the same ballot. And we propose that the top four vote getters advance out of that primary to the general election. And the reason a single primary where everybody's in it is is so important is that 
uh, if you want to win, you want to appeal to as many voters as you can. Hopefully, uh, you know, more people will vote in the primary. Um, and, and therefore, you're going to get people that, uh, you know, are not just trying to appeal to their, you know, particular, you know, extreme. The second part of the Gail Porter election reform trifecta, ranked choice voting. Here's how ranked choice voting works. You'll now have four candidates that made it out of the top four primary. Those four candidates will all be listed on the general election ballot. And you come and vote for them in order of preference. So it's easy. This is my first choice. This candidate's my second choice. This is my third choice. This is my fourth choice. When the votes are tabulated, if no candidate has received over 50%, then whoever came in last is dropped and votes for that candidate are then reallocated to those voters' second choice and the count is run again until one candidate reaches over 50%. And uh, what that does is it gives a candidate a need to appeal to a broader group of voters. And very importantly, it eliminates one of the hugest barriers to competition in the existing system, and that is the spoiler argument. So what happens currently is that if there's let's say, an attractive third-party candidate or an independent candidate, both Democrats and Republicans will make the argument that nobody should vote for them because they will simply draw votes away from a Democrat or draw votes away from a Republican and therefore spoil the election for one of the duopoly candidates. Once you have ranked choice voting, Everybody can pick whoever they want as their first choice, second choice, third choice. No vote is wasted and no vote spoils the election for another candidate. And then the last part of the trifecta is nonpartisan redistricting. Gerrymandering has to go. Essentially, when parties control drawing the districts, they can draw districts that will be more likely to tilt in favor of their party and they can end up having a disproportionate number of, quote-unquote, safe Republican seats or safe Democratic seats by the way that they draw the districts, and we want to make that, that go away. In addition to election rule reforms, Porter and Gale would like to see changes to the rules around governing. So Congress makes its own rules for how it functions. And over time, these rules, customs, and practices have been set in place to give an enormous amount of power to the party that controls the chamber. And right now, what's happened, and this is sort of collusion in a way, is when the other party takes over, they do it the same way, pretty much. So we propose moving away from partisan control of the day-to-day -day legislating in Congress and also, of course, in state legislatures as well. The third leg of their reform agenda is about money in politics. But their analysis led them to a different conclusion than many reformers. Where we differ with so many people championing these reforms is that we don't believe 
that money in politics is the core issue. Ultimately, the problem is really this nature of competition that leads to this partisanship. And that's not a money issue per se. That's a structural issue. If you take money out of politics without changing the rules of the game, you'll simply make it cheaper for those using the existing system to get the self-interested results that they want without changing the incentives to actually deliver solutions for the American people. Having said that, we do believe that there are benefits to increasing the power of smaller donors. And so the reforms that we have suggested are primarily focused on increasing the power of small, smaller donors. For instance, having the government itself match donations from small donors. We should note that most of the ideas Gail and Porter are presenting here are not all that novel if you follow election reform even a little bit. Even we poked into a lot of them a couple years ago in an episode called 10 Ideas to Make Politics Less Rotten. I guess it's one measure of how successful and dominant the political duopoly is that plenty of seemingly sensible people have plenty of seemingly sensible reform ideas that for the most part gain very little traction. It is definitely challenging. This is a ground game. We're not going to be able to do this in a in, in a year or one election cycle because the uh, resources that the current duopoly have to deploy to play their game are, are substantial. Despite uh, the rather depressing or at least sobering picture that you paint of the political industry, um, throughout the report, you express quite a bit of optimism. And I want to know why or how, because um, I don't see the avenue, I guess, for optimism. Well, uh, you know, I do think we have a, a, a basic uh, optimism. Um, we have no sense that it will be easy to change the rules of this game. Uh, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. But the good news is we've had some progress. We've got some nonpartisan primary states now, including California. You know, we've got ranked choice voting in Maine. I think what seems to be building in America is a growing appetite and a growing recognition that this isn't working for our country. And I think the younger generation, you know, millennials are particularly outraged and concerned and open to... Uh, you know, all kinds of new ideas. But I think it's going to take time. The most exciting strategy in this area that we champion is a strategy put forth by the Centrist Project. And full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Centrist Project. It's now actually called Unite America. And this is the Senate fulcrum strategy. So here's the idea. Let's elect five centrist problem-solving oriented U.S. senators who, at that number five, would likely deny either party an outright majority in the Senate, which would make those five senators the most powerful single coalition in Washington, D.C., able to serve as a bridge between the two parties or to align with one party or the other, depending on the issue, in order to move forward very difficult policy solutions where previously there has not been the political will. So we don't need to wait 
to change the actual rules of the game to deliver politicians to office who can act independently of the existing political industrial complex. So that's an interesting idea, seemingly sensible, maybe even viable. But this whole conversation got me thinking. If our political system really operates like an industry, as Catherine Gale and Michael Porter argue, maybe it should be treated like one. In most industries, good products and services are rewarded. Weakness and incompetence are punished. Catherine Gale, coming from the cutthroat food industry, surely knows this firsthand. There's constant pressure to modernize, to optimize, to fight off old rivals and new. Indeed, not long after she brought Michael Porter in to consult on the future of Gale Foods, she decided to sell her company to a private equity firm in Chicago. Why? I absolutely loved running that company, she wrote to us later. But life is short, and I had other things I was also passionate about. I wanted the company to be in the best position to succeed, and so I focused on professionalizing the company and developing a long-term strategy that took into account a changing competitive landscape. Hmm. And that got me thinking, maybe there's some private equity firm out there who'd like to modernize a certain political party or two. Any buyers out there? If you're too shy to approach the Democrats or the Republicans directly, drop us a line, radio at Freakonomics.com. We'll get things moving. Meanwhile, coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio, if you think back to the Cold War, surely you remember the U.S.-Soviet arms race. But did you know about the farms race? Outproducing the U.S. in per capita meat and milk production would be the Soviet equivalent of hitting American capitalism with a torpedo. How did the Americans fight back? Literally airlifting a 10,000-square-foot supermarket into Yugoslavia. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Greg Rosalski with help from Zach Lipinski. Our staff also includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippon, Harry Huggins, Matt Hickey, and Corinne Wallace. Our intern is Daphne Chen. We had help this week from Nellie Osborne, and special thanks to our Freakonomics Radio listener, Kyle Watson, for bringing the Porter Gale paper to our attention. Our theme song is Mr. Fortune by The Hitchhikers. All the other music was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio and give it a nice rating if you'd like on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast app. Our entire archive can be found exclusively on the Stitcher app or at Freakonomics.com, where we also publish transcripts and show notes. You can also sign up for our email newsletter. To get our entire archive ad-free, along with bonus episodes, go to stitcherpremium.com slash Freakonomics. We also publish every week on Medium, a short text version of our new episode. Go to medium.com slash Radio. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Freakonomics Radio also plays on many NPR stations, so check your local station for details. As always, thank you for listening.
Stitcher. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.